Relevant. Connected. Great conversation. The Rick and Suzanne Show. Catch them live. Weekdays 1 to 3 on CJAD 800. Yeah! Earth, Wind, and Fire. New album out. Now, then, and forever. It's out tomorrow. Well, it's about time. I miss that sound. Right. Now, if I had my buds in, I'd have this, like, you know, at max uh, volume, and that's probably not a good thing. And on the Rick and Suzanne show here at CJAD, we thought we'd take a look at, uh, well, because it's hearing, uh, what's the word for it when, uh, not appreciation, but they, uh, it's awareness week, mm-hmm. basically. And uh, we certainly need to be aware of hearing loss, more and more so this year. There's noise all around us. We do have technology that pumps uh, high volumes of music right into the ear. Constantly. And now the big, well, yeah, now the big DB headsets and everything like that. And uh, and you're probably worried about your kids, your own hearing loss, and we thought we'd talk to somebody who knows a thing or two about it. And joining us right now is audiologist Dale uh, B- uh, Bonnie Castle. Hi, Dale. Hi there. It's great to talk to you on the air. Thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. Well, let's talk in general about hearing loss. Does this affect a lot of people in Canada? Yes, it does. They think that one in ten Canadians uh, this, of all ages have some degree of hearing loss. But particularly over the age of 65, the numbers creep up dramatically to one in three Canadians over the age of 65. It's very pervasive, it's misunderstood, and it's the invisible handicap. All right, and I, I think we're all very concerned, too, about our kids these days and, and what they're facing. Are we seeing an uptick in younger people? Yes, sir, we are, yes. And it's due to the, uh, mostly due to the recreational music that they're listening to at loud levels for long hours. Is that what makes a difference? Because I, I think back of going to a rock concerts, and you, then my ears would be ringing for a couple of days, and but then it would it would go away. But now, because they're constantly have those earphones on, mm-hmm. is it making that much of a difference? It's making a difference. It's definitely making a difference because when people look at um, hearing loss, um, they look at the number of hours a person's exposed to and the decibel level, how loud. Uh, the message is, and of course, earphones that are going into the ear canal, it's even louder because it's close to the eardrum. So it is a big concern. Apple did this whole thing not too long ago where they tried to set it up so that it's maxed and you'd have to override that if you chose to make it louder. Are Are the people that manufacture these things doing enough? You know what? I'm honestly not sure. I can't answer that question. But you see the end result and you're seeing more young people with hearing problems. Yes, and I'm, I'm I saw a lot of people I saw were adults, 55 and older. And so, so what are we looking for? How do you know that your hearing is starting to go? Well, often you find that you're making people repeat. Uh, the first thing people will say to me is, well, I hear, but I don't always understand you. When your back is turned, when you're at a distance, if there's the least bit of background noise, I'm making you repeat. Or they might say, I misunderstand. You said something like, uh, I'm looking for the pin, and I heard you say, I'm looking for the gin. Um, So there's misunderstandings that go on. At a distance, background noise, you lose part of the message, and that's usually a good indication that there's some degree of loss. Uh, Let me ask you, we're speaking to Dale Bonnycastle. She's an audiologist with about 30 years of experience. Dale, sometimes I notice when I'm in conversation, I will watch the mouth and so I can get, does that help me to hear 
uh, any better? I always find, as you mentioned, if people are turned around, I'm like, okay, I need to see your face to really focus on what you're saying. Absolutely, it helps. It looks, uh, it's the lips, it's the face. That helps a great deal. Body language, uh, the gestures that you use, it all gives you an important cue. I'm not sure if it's 30% of the message or more that is given to you visually. Now, the other thing, too, is context. If you know someone's talking about the weather, your brain fills in the blanks sometimes, and you can make an educated guess. But the visual is incredibly important, especially when you start to lose your hearing or you're in a very noisy place. You know, Dale, I, I get an annual medical, and in my annual medical, they take my eye pressure as well as I do an audiogram. I have my ears checked uh, at my doctor's, which is, you know, an annual thing again, and they can catch anything if it's getting any worse. Mm-hmm. Are we doing anything like that on an annual basis? Should the um, government do more? I think, personally, if you're over 65, a baseline audiogram should be part of the whole medical workup. Uh so I think that should be something that should be included. Um, it's not legislated. Uh, we are working on universal hearing uh, screening for babies. But there's no program that I know of for adults. The other important thing, speaking about detection, is kids in school. Some of these kids slip through the cracks. They might be misdiagnosed as learning disabled, but they have a hearing loss. So I think somehow we have to get in schools and check children routinely doesn't take long. What clues should parents look for if they think that their child might be having a hearing problem? Well, one thing is these kids don't spell well. Like they, they, when they're doing their dictation, it's, it can be a disaster. Hmm. If they're in the back of the class, they're lost. Uh, they might be watching intently. They might not hear you if, if you're in another room or they're looking down and playing with their toys. They might not hear. So there's a few cues. Um, but, you know, the best way is, is get a test. Some, sadly, babies and kids have been misdiagnosed. You know, often a well-meaning person might say, doctor might say, or years ago anyway, oh, boys are slow. They'll grow out of this. Or they don't speak, they'll grow out of it. But in fact, they had a hearing loss. Thankfully, there's less of that. Okay, where does one go for an audiogram? You can go to hospitals. You can speak to your health provider. Uh, There's private clinics uh, all over the island of Montreal. Uh, there is a fee for a private clinic, but if you go to a hospital, uh, there is no fee, of course. But you would probably need right. a doctor's referral. I believe you need a doctor's referral. Now, you may not for the private clinics. You mm. would have to check with the clinic to see. There's also some clinics where there's a doctor, an audiologist, uh, even a hearing aid acquisition working together under one roof. So you could probably do one possibly do one-stop shopping. I'm not 100% sure. My work has been in the public sectors, in hospitals, and most recently at the MAB Mackay Rehabilitation Center. Okay. And, and Dale, very quickly, what is CHIP? CHIP stands for Communicate for Hearing Impaired People. It's a self-help group run by the hearing impaired for the hearing impaired, and our mandate is to really improve the quality of life for people who have hearing loss, We have um, courses, information lectures. Uh, We have a technical aid center where people can come. And generally to see how we can help people uh, learn to navigate the world that is really not uh, built for people with hearing loss. So information, support. Uh, We also have an excellent film program where we show captioned films at night. 
So yeah. it's all about edu- it's education and support. A terrific website, too. Uh, yes, the, indeed. The Communicate for Hearing Impaired Persons chip, uh, and we'll put a link up on our webpage for that, oh, Dale. Oh, terrific, terrific. I just, I had a, I had a, you probably don't have enough time to answer, and it's probably uh, for another day, but I just, I want to know why hearing aids are so expensive when they have such little cost involved in the parts. Oh, boy, that's a tough Isn't that a big question? There's a lot of research and development, I know, that goes into the hearing aid technology. The nanotechnology is phenomenal. They've improved a great deal. Um, but, yes, it is, it, it's very costly. Medicare does cover uh, the cost of hearing aids um, for adults and seniors, at least one hearing aid, and two if you're working. Right. So, you know what? We're very lucky in Quebec. We have a very good program for technical aids. Well, Dale, thank you very much. It's been a great pleasure, and thank you so much. Thank you. Dale Bonnycastle is an audiologist, uh, and she's uh, giving courses, and she's involved with CHIP and over at the Mackay Center. And we are going to put a, a link up on our page because they've got all sorts of programs with speech reading and uh, et cetera, the courses that you can take. All launching. All launching off right now, and all that information will be at our show page on cjad.com. This is the Rick and Suzanne Show podcast. Hear Rick and Suzanne live weekdays 1 to 3 on CJAD 800. Food on Mondays, and boy, do we have a hitter coming up uh, in just over a half hour. And then fitness, Sam Adiatis will be in after 2.30. Uh, so still lots to come on the show today. But right now, uh, understanding the challenging child. Uh, Harvard psychologist, author of the highly acclaimed books, The Explosive Child, and Lost at School, an originator of the Collaborative Problem Solving Approach, CPS, evidence-based, a proven approach to understanding and helping challenging kids. And we introduce our guest, Dr. Ross Green. Dr. Green, thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. My pleasure. So, so how would I differentiate between just normal growing up problems and a challenging child? Um, I'm not sure that I would try very hard to distinguish between those. I, oh. uh, if, if people are, um, feel like they have a problem with a child or if the child is doing things that they wish the child wasn't doing or not meeting certain expectations, um, wh- there's a problem. And um, I'd, then, then I'd start worrying about it. I, I think that um, sometimes we wait for somebody to tell us that what the child is doing is abnormal even though we already have a big problem, I wouldn't wait. If, if, if we've got a big problem, we've got a big problem. Well, what do we consider a challenging child or an explosive child? One whose behavior is not in keeping with adult expectations. Now, I mean, that's pretty abstract, but I can tell you what many of the kids who I work with do that adults are objecting to, and they are doing these things primarily in the midst of frustration, in the midst of adults having an expectation that the child is having difficulty meeting. So the behaviors, which are, by the way, the least important part when it comes to helping the child are things like hitting, spitting, kicking, biting, throwing, destroying, crying, swearing. Those are the things lots of human beings, kids included, do when they're having trouble meeting expectations. But the most important part is what are the expectations that the individual is having difficulty meeting and what's the best way to go about helping them try to meet those expectations? All right, and we're talking to Dr. Ross Green, Harvard psychologist and author of a couple of books, The Explosive Child and Lost at School, and originator of the collaborative problem-solving approach. So I gather from that, then, uh, Dr. Green, that it's collaborative. You're working with whom? Who, who has to collaborate on this? Uh, caregivers and the child. In other words, 
um, what a, a big part of helping caregivers and kids with this is helping the caregivers recognize that it takes two to tango. Um, there's some things about this kid that are making it hard for him to meet our expectations, um, but there's also the expectations themselves, and those that's the that's the caregiver part of the equation. Um, if a caregiver wanting certain expectations to be met and a child not meeting those expectations, if we're going to solve that problem, it's going to take both of them to solve it. When you talk about the parent's expectations, are we just talking like, I guess, standard expectations, or are we talking about uh, some heavy pressure sometimes put on t- children you know, to achieve certain things, whether it be uh, at school, educational, soci- uh, socially, athletically? Well, um, you know, sometimes we do have to take a very good look at um, whether the expectations that are being placed upon a child are realistic. But whether an expectation is realistic or not, certainly we can say some societal things about whether the expectations we're placing on kids these days, especially academically perhaps, especially how early we're expecting things, Mm. whether those are really realistic sort of in the aggregate. But I must say, I'm usually taking expectations and whether they're realistic or not, one kid at a time. Yeah. Um, And that's really the level of analysis because, you know, while... I don't know, 60 to 70% of kids might be brushing their teeth at night without difficulty. Um, the people who are walking through my door, the 20 or 30% whose kids are not brushing their teeth without difficulty at night and at the extreme end are punching a hole in the wall because of that difficulty. Wow, but you, wow. how do you link that together as to something I, that they're not, they're not getting, that they're not achieving? Well, that's, that's exactly the point, and that is that while... People who I might be trying to help in the beginning are much more concerned about the hole in the wall. And I don't, I don't blame them for being concerned about the hole in the wall. That's big. Or getting hit by your kid or being called names by your kid or being screamed at by your kid. Those are very concerning behaviors. But behind every concerning behavior is the problem that set it in motion in the first place. And as you might think from the name of the model that I originated. The original name is collaborative problem solving. I now actually call it something different, collaborative and proactive solutions. But as you would imagine, um, if you're going to solve a problem, um, you've got to be figured, you've got to focus on what the problem is in the first place. Um, So often what adults do is they focus on the behavior the kid is exhibiting, say hitting and they want to talk to the kid about not hitting anymore. But the reality is the kid is hitting in response to 27 different problems. If all we do is try to talk with the kid about the fact that he's hitting, we're actually trying to talk to him about the 27 different things that are causing him to hit. In this model, we're not focused on the behavior. We're focused on solving the problems that are giving rise to the behavior. Now, and now, that is a huge difference. Absolutely. But how does a parent wade through all that to hone in on the problem? Uh, I have many parents and educators uh, make a list of everything the kid is balking at, everything that there's a disagreement about, everything the kid's getting in trouble for, everything they're on the kid's case about or having to remind the kid to do over and over and over again. All of those are what I call unsolved problems. 
I find that if I have people keep track of it for a week, what walks in my office the next week or what I'm being presented with the next week when I'm working with educators is a very long list of the things that this kid is balking at doing and that are causing the child's challenging behavior. Now, you've made a very important point. That can often be very overwhelming at first. But here's the deal. The reason it's so overwhelming is because so many problems have gone unsolved for such a long time. We've got to start somewhere. If we keep focusing on the child's behavior, if all we keep doing is punishing the behaviors we don't like and re- rewarding behaviors that we want to see instead, we will never get around to focusing on the problems that are causing those behaviors, and that pile of problems is simply going to continue to get bigger and bigger and bigger. Uh, Boy, and it's still the how just screams at me. Yeah, well, we're, we're speaking to Dr. Ross Green. He's a Harvard psychologist and author of The Explosive Child and Lost at School. Um, you know, I, I think back to when my, my children were small, and there would, I always understood that explosions or tantrums were kind of due to their lack of verbal skills, the frustration that would develop because they would not be able to communicate what they were needing or what they were upset about. And so then, you know, they just kind of lose complete control. Yes. So, so I, And I, I think that that's a fine explanation. It's just that many are losing control. Many are losing control because they don't have the words to tell us what's going on or to figure out what to do about it instead, right? Mm-hmm. But many are losing it because of other skills that they might be lacking. Language processing skills is certainly in the mix of skills that could cause a child to have difficulty um, regulating their emotions, responding to frustration, being flexible and adaptable, solving problems. Language processing skills are frequently in the mix, but so are a bunch of other types of skills, like um, difficulty shifting from one mindset or task to another, as would occur when we're saying, Billy, turn off the TV and come in for dinner the skills to regulate one's emotions, the skills to be um, a gray thinker instead of being very black and white, social skills. Here's, here's what I'm always saying these days. There has actually never been a better time in human evolution to be understanding and helping a behaviorally challenging child because we have never known more about them than we know right here now in the year 2013. As with so many other areas, Boy, do we know a lot more now than we did 40 or 50 years ago. If you asked me, what's the single most compelling thing we now know about behaviorally challenging kids that we didn't know 40 or 50 years ago, it's the following. They're lacking skills. All right, we're going to delve into that a little bit more. Yeah, Dr. Ross Green, we'd like you to stay with us. We're speaking with Dr. Green. He's a Harvard psychologist, author of The Explosive Child and Lost at School, talking about understanding the challenging child, and we'll talk a little bit more about developing those skills and what skills are missing with Dr. Green in just a moment. The Rick and Suzanne Show at 150 on CJAD. New music out this week from the Gypsy Kings. New album called Saber Flamenco. It's been seven years since we heard from these guys. And we continue our conversation on understanding the challenging child. Dr. Ross Green is with us, Harvard psychologist, author of the highly acclaimed books, The Explosive Child and Lost at School. 
originator of the collaborative problem-solving approach, which is now solution-oriented, and an evidence-based proven approach to understanding and helping challenging kids. And when last we left our conversation, uh, Dr. Green, uh, the number one issue with children is skills. The number one factor that is setting in motion challenging behavior is lagging skills. We are accustomed to thinking that it's lagging motivation. We're accustomed to thinking that it's poor parenting. Um, Those might be uh, factors that could be contributing, but lagging skill is the primary factor. Well, let me ask you something. You know, we we put a lot of emphasis on early education these days. We're trying to get three-year-olds and four-year-olds to be, you know, uh, reciting Dante, I think, sometimes, or, (laughs) or, you know, writing cursive. You know, we're trying to give them the educational skills of a 10-year-old, and there's all this pressure. What is wrong with taking time to develop skills? Is that part of it, do you think? Well, I think that the demands we are placing on kids earlier and earlier in development uh, are sometimes extreme. I think that the earlier in development we demand skills from kids, the more are going to fall off the apple cart. Kids who might not have fallen off the apple cart when the demands were more reasonable are falling off the apple cart now. That's why when I'm asked, as I am frequently, Um, Why do you think that there are more of these kids than there have ever been? One part of the answer, I think, is that we are demanding uh, skills from kids earlier and earlier in development. Um, You know, if the vast majority of kids couldn't meet the demands, then there would be more upheaval and people would start paying closer attention. But it's still a minority of kids who are exhibiting challenging behavior in response to those increased demands so people aren't quite as upset about it as maybe they ought to be. The thing that they lose sight of is that whether you have a challenging kid in your household or not, if there's a challenging child in your child's classroom, your child is being affected. And the degree to which we are expecting skills of kids earlier and earlier in development is a potential factor that's contributing to it, whether your child's able to meet those demands or not. Interesting. A text, too, uh, from someone who's read your book, Explosive Child. Uh, they have a 10-year-old. They've read the book. It's helped, but the problem persists and comes out unexpectedly and repeatedly. Is professional help the only solution, the texter asks? Well, I don't know because um, I can't quite tell what they've done. Um, the unexpectedly part is the piece that intrigues me the most. And so what I'm wondering is, have they yet made a list of all of the unsolved problems that are setting in motion um, challenging behavior in their child. If they haven't made the list, then it might still feel like it's unexpected when their child exhibits challenging behavior, Um, but it probably isn't as unpredictable as it may feel. That list of unsolved problems is absolutely crucial because not only does it tell you what problems you need to solve, it also helps you start solving those problems proactively rather than in the heat of the moment. You know, I'm going to go back to those skills uh, again, because, I mean, the body and the brain is set up from the beginning to acquire certain skills at a certain point as the development of the brain happens and the body happens. So I, I have to, I'm going to go back to that pushing of uh, skills too early in life. Is there some type of, um, I don't know, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Is there a standard of, you know, skills at this age, you know, they should be developed to certain skills at that age as it goes go along. Do we know what age appropriate skills they should have? There are certain um, 
things we know kids should be able to do by certain ages, Mm -hmm. and we have sort of a sense of what skills they should have at certain ages. But I, I will say this, no matter what the norm is for skill development and for certain what we might call developmental milestones, there are always going to be kids, always going to be human beings who are not up with the average. There's always going to be people who are well above average. So um, we don't want to peg expecting things too early as the sole explanation here because we've had challenging kids forever. The best news is that we now know what's really going on. They're lacking skills. Those lagging skills are making it difficult for them to meet certain very specific expectations. And if we try to solve those problems with kids and help them meet those expectations in a way that's collaborative instead of unilateral, things go a whole bunch better. Well, here's a cool thing about uh, Dr. Ross Green. He will be in Montreal on Thursday, and uh, he's going to be uh, leading a class, and, uh, and we're going to post information about that on our blog too, Ross. That's fantastic. That is fantastic. This has been fantastic listening to you and talking to you. Once again, you can still register for this class. If you go to cjd.com, we're going to have it on our show page, a link to the registration. And it's, it's an all-day class that you're going to be doing. Is this your first time in Montreal? No, I've been in Montreal many times and love it. Okay, right. well, <laughs> next time you're coming in, then you have to come into the studio and right. come and chat with us. I'd be happy to do that anytime. That would be great. Dr. Ross Green is a Harvard psychologist, author of The Explosive Child and Lost at School. This is the Rick and Suzanne Show podcast. Hear Rick and Suzanne live weekdays 1 this to 3 on CJD 800. I don't know. That's just that's the wrong reason to go to the gym. The wrong reason. It is uh, 2.36, and of course, Sam Adiatis is in. We talk to him uh, about fitness from time to time on our fitness segment. Uh, total home training in studio, sitting down, looking like a million bucks in his uh, Adidas uh, gym suit, and he's all, like, ripped and puffed up. And oh, he's just, puffed up all right. You know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thanks, Rick. Pumped up. Himself. Well, thank you. Thank you, Sam. we got to turn Sam, Sam's microphone on so we can be heard. Okay. All there right. you go. There's Sam. Yeah. Hi, Sam. Am I with you guys? Yes, you are. Yeah, great. Uh, all right. So let's. This is interesting, especially at this time of year. Uh, mm-hmm. Kids going back to school, uh, and a lot of them getting back into their mm. their different sports programs. Interesting story. Boy training. He does a lot of uh, freestyle skiing. So he was practicing in the gym, and he was on the trampoline, and uh, landed poorly, mm. and blew out a knee. Mm-hmm. So now you've got a kid around 10 or 11 active sport. But now we talk about injuries and athletes, professional athletes. How does a parent then help the child recover from a sports injury like that? Yeah, that is uh, very sad. Uh, now, just to, um, just to backdrop a second, when kids are involved in sports, whatever sport they're involved in, you have to make sure that they have proper coaching. A lot of times we give the title to someone as a coach that doesn't actually have the credentials to carry that title as a coach. A coach is somebody that is able to analyze the sport that the child is doing and he can actually give them exercises and routines to enhance their sport and reduce the incidence of injuries because a good coach also knows that with this sport, the incidence of ankle sprains is high uh, and knee right. uh, tearing ligaments or knee problems is high or shoulder problems. So you need to know that as a coach. So that in the training, you have to address it. So it's almost like um, uh, preventative 
exercises that mm-hmm. you have to introduce. So, uh, unfortunate. Now, with the kids, obviously, if the sport, for example, that this kid was doing was uh, he, jumping. He just had a, he just had a, it was an accident. He had yeah, a bad Well, landing. I mean, obviously, sometimes with all the training yeah. you can do, you can't prevent an accident. An yeah. accident is an accident. But a lot of times, things could be prevented or reduce the instance of those accidents. Now, this is a tough situation because if this child, if that was his main source or the main thing that he did as an activity or as a pastime, uh, it's very difficult to come back from. It's very difficult because you cannot do anything. So then things can set in as depression. You can start feeling uh, different, I guess, emotions because you cannot participate. What can you do as a parent? You got to uh, help them. Th- you know, you got to help them through through the time period of healing. Yeah, and that is not an easy. And and as in the article I was looking at, and uh, which was quite a good article, is you have to look at the different options. Is surgery always the option? Mm. Can he do some therapy that will help him get back to his sport? So you have to investigate or find out as much as you can as opposed to the options and then gradually get your child back to doing exercises or participating into his sport. It's a long process. And sometimes the best advice is you're going to have to sit out for a long time. You're going to have to not do anything when I fell off my motorcycle and blew my knee out many years ago, I had a summer mm-hmm. months mm-hmm. where I just couldn't do a thing. You know, they, they, no exercises, nothing like that. It had to heal. I just had a friend uh, who broke an ankle in a skydiving incident. Uh, this is a, a tremendously fit aerobatic pilot who had to sit out and atrophy is a problem with this, mm-hmm. had to build up all his G tolerances again. And professionally, this has cost him a pile of money mm-hmm. because he's had to sit out for a while while he recovered from this and then start his therapy program all over again. So sometimes you just have to stop, t- take a break and, t- and stop. Oh, definitely. And especially if it's a ligament, knee ligament, it's usually, I mean, the recovery is at least six months to a year from this type of injury. And then on the other, on the other hand of that, if you do not take enough time to recover, you can re-injure it. So this could become now a chronic situation. Right. And even worse. Yes, absolutely. A torque can go to a rip. Well, yeah. yeah. So taking enough time to recover and then maybe finding some alternatives for the kid or for the children to, to do is a great exercise. There was some suggestions which are actually very good, which is swimming. If you can do some swimming just to reduce maybe atrophy where you know, where you're not doing anything, your muscles are just sort of shrinking. Yeah. So maybe you can start swimming a little bit and doing different types of activities that doesn't put tension or or or, or weight on the injured limb uh, would be great. So good luck with that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, a lot of kids getting ready to start playing hockey again and mm-hmm. stuff like that. What should they be doing now to, to avoid sport injury? You're oh, talking yeah. about preventive. Yeah. And especially we know with, with hockey, especially we know a or lot skating. of skating. We look, we know that they have to do a lot of work around their ankles because they're putting a lot of strain on their ankles. We know that they have to work on their groin and stretch those muscles between their legs. And we also have to work on their core so that they can actually control their body because as you're playing hockey, even though at the younger levels there's no contact, there is incidental contact. So you need to be able to control your body uh, when you have external resistance. So a lot of core training uh, is effective. Uh, a lot of exercises for mobility exercises for the ankles and the hips and flexibility for the groin and yeah and the hips uh, and the hip and how, the hip area. How do you get the ankles stronger? How do you do that? Well, with the ankles, what you want to do with your ankles is basically that joint. You want to create. You want to have 
have good mobility in the joint so that it can actually withstand the movement laterally, front and back. So what you do is basically you do exercises that increase the range of motion in that area. Now, the muscles around the ankle, if you're talking about there is the gastronemius, the muscle that goes up, the calf muscle and the soleus muscle, and then you also have the muscles in the front, the tibialis anterior. Those are different muscles that are not really worked because they're not pretty exercises right so but this is where we're going to preventative type exercises so when instead of doing a warm-up for mm-hmm. five minutes on a treadmill you can get a kid to do these five exercises that take a few minutes that will prevent and help and re uh, enforce the ankle and the mobility of the ankle so that you can reduce the incidence of him getting a sprain or anything of that I, nature. is there a machine or something in the gym that you can go on that isolates your ankle uh no, I... Yes and no. Mm-hmm. There is the traditional calf raising machines, right, which basically works the muscle behind your knee, above your ankle, and underneath your knee. It's the muscles in the back of your leg, your calves. Yeah. So it's good to have strong calves, and it's important. So there is a couple of machines where you can do it from a seated position or a standing position, but you're probably off if you're younger that you're not using that. You're using your own body weight to reinforce those muscles and that joint. Yeah. Let's let's talk about timing with exercising, mm-hmm. especially, you know, if you had a big meal and mm-hmm. you've decided mm-hmm. I'm going to go out for mm-hmm. a run or something mm-hmm. and exercise and work this off. Is that a good idea? It's not a good idea. Definitely not a good idea. Uh, we have now, this has been going around for a while, which we, they call nutrient timing. And basically what it means is when you take your meals. How do you organize your meals? So if you're exercising regularly, you need to organize your meals, what we call a pre-workout uh, pre, uh, meal and a post-workout meal. And there's also an in-workout meal. So what should you be having to prepare yourself for a workout? Now, just in simple terms, when we talk about carbohydrates, because carbohydrates are the primary source of energy for our body, there's two types of carbohydrates. There's simple carbohydrates and there's complex carbohydrates. Before you work out, you want to take complex carbohydrates because they break down slowly in your body and they give you sustained energy for your workout. After your workout, you want to take simple carbohydrates because your body... Such as, what would that be? Anything, uh, any fruit or any juice is a simple carbohydrate because your muscles are readily sensitive and able to absorb it quickly to replenish the stores or the glycogen or the energy you've used during your workout. So pre-workout is complex, post-workout is simple. And you also want to add what? A little bit of protein at the end of your workout because while you're working out, you're actually breaking your muscles down. So what you want to do afterwards is help to build your muscles and protein is what helps build your muscles. So you want to add simple carbohydrates with protein after your workout. So those are the general guidelines. All right. Well, you, you, you're just getting going here. We, the warm-up is complete and we'll we'll move on to the, <laughs> to the full deal in just a moment. We're going to continue with <laughs> yeah, Sam absolutely. Mattiatis here on fitness. Uh, Sam Mattiatis, of course, of Total Home Training. He's in studio. If you have questions for Sam about training or about the particular exercises, please give us a call or text us. Even better, 514-800 to text. Or if you want to call, it is 514-790-0991 or start talking. Star eight two five five. It's the Rick and Suzanne Show on CJAD eight hundred and the Gypsy Kings out with a brand new album, first in like seven years. Tomorrow, and here's just a taste. It's already putting me in a very happy place. <laughs> and that man laughing 
because he's also in a happy place because he's so freaking fit is uh, Sam Addis and fitness is and, and look at Suzanne's actually getting groovy to this. I'm dancing, mm-hmm. which uh, is a great form of exercise. Apparently. And uh, that's what this segment's all about. And Sam Addis is uh, he's on a roll here, I'm telling you, and the techs have been rolling in. In fact, uh, someone has texted uh, that their their knee padding, the padding on my kneecaps deteriorating. What exercise can I do for that? Mm-hmm. Okay. So just out there for those wrist problems and knee problems, knees and joints, you can't strengthen. You have to strengthen the muscles around your knees. So if we look at your knee, basically you have the muscles that run front of your leg, your quadriceps, and the muscles that run in the back of your legs, your hamstrings. And then you have a big muscle in your derriere called the gluteus maximus. Those muscles control and protect your knee. So if you want to strengthen those joints, you need to strengthen the muscles above or below your joint. Wait a minute. Your butt protects your knee? Yes, absolutely. Especially because your butt, when you're looking at your butt, there's also a muscle on the side of your butt called the gluteus medius, which actually controls the tracking of your knee. So if your knee tends to fall inwards, you have a weak gluteus medius. So when you work that muscle on the side of your butt, it helps to protect that knee and keep it aligned. So the more aligned your knees are, the less wear and tear on your joints. It's It's... It's simple, but not that simple. So you need to reinforce the muscles around or below or above that joint. So that would be the same hmm. then for the wrist. You would want to work. What Absolutely. are these muscles here? Between yeah, those the are elbow your, and the wrist. Those are your flexors and extensors that run up and down your arm from your elbow down to your wrist. You need to work on those. And the other thing about the wrist, you also need to work on your grip strength grip strength take a tennis ball and squeeze a tennis ball and do repetitions on each arm that is great for strengthening the muscles of your hand so that your wrist doesn't have to take the brunt of your exercises right and and what is your opinion of spin classes for women over 50 a texture asks I love it. Spinning is a fantastic exercise. It should not be your only form of exercise. Women out there, listen, you got to get off the treadmills and the spinning bikes and all that stuff. You got to get into the weight room and you got to supplement or complement your body with some great muscle building exercises. Yeah. Okay. We got a question here. Hello. I tore muscle fibers in my left uh, forearm. Three to four weeks ago at the gym doing reverse curls. I went heavy. I haven't been to the gym for two weeks to heal. The pain is so much less, but there's still pain. How much longer should I wait before returning to the gym? My friend, that is an answer for your physiotherapist that uh, they will give you the green light. You, You should not ask your trainer or anybody working with fitness-related stuff with you when you should go back. That is a question for your physiotherapist and your doctor. So your doctor and your physiotherapist will give you the green light when you can go back to strength training. Well, is pain an indicator? If there's any pain, do you not? That should be your clue. That well, it uh, depends on the pain, Suzanne. Is it muscular pain or is it pain a sharp pain? So if it's muscular pain, that's part of working out. It's called DOMS, delayed onset muscle soreness, which is a result of training, which you experience 24 to 48 hours after your workout. So that is normal pain that you feel from working out. There is pain that is a sharp pain that is not a result of working out. So you have to be able to distinguish between the two types of pain and when to lay off and when to uh, go back to working out. All right. Matt wants to know, what is the best source of protein for a post-workout? Milk, chocolate, milk. Chocolate milk, really? Chocolate milk trumps 
any protein out there. Yeah. Chocolate milk is the number one uh, thing that you can do as post That's why it's at the gyms. Yeah. Well, so so when we were just talking, when we were in commercials there about what I was eating post workout, and today I said I had almonds, I had a carrot, and some red peppers. So, and you said to me, no, not good enough. So, if I had added some chocolate milk to that, fantastic. Oh. Fantastic. All right, another question. I'm 50, used to do a lot of bench presses when I was young. How do I get rid of my man boobs? Good question. Uh, start doing some shoulder exercises. <laughs> round and round and round you go. <laughs> start doing some shoulder exercises. And you know what? I mean, go back to doing push-ups. I mean, stay off the heavy weights because the heavy weights tend to put a lot of sort of muscle on your chest. Right. So if you want to be lean and just have um, a lean muscle get back to push-ups so you can't let it go because if you do let it go you do will have man boobs but you need to go back to your push-ups well sam are there any exercises that help you tone all over yes there are well my would you share that with us please with the studio audience and yes i will do that (laughs) right away okay everybody out there if you want to get the most big bang for your exercises you need to do your stuff standing. So whatever exercise you're doing, if you do it from a standing position, you will activate that big muscle behind you called the gluteus maximus. Mm-hmm. You will activate your core muscles and you will also work the muscles that you're actually working. When you sit down, you actually deactivate that big muscle behind you, your core muscles, and you only isolate what you're working. So if you want to get more out of what you're doing, stand up and do everything standing. That's the simple answer. All right. Well, that's all the time we have. One quick question, though. I saw a bozu, bozu for sale. Yes. Is it what? Worth, is it worth to have a bozu at home? What's a it's, bozu? It, it's a uh, half a circle with a flat plank on top, oh. so you can kind of uh, rock back and forth. Yeah. Is it, is it worth having a bozu at home? Not for the price. It goes for one hundred and eighty dollars, one hundred and sixty to one hundred and eighty dollars for that. It is not worth the price, but if you're willing to. Uh, buy it and invest and money is not an issue it's a good little toy to have because i'm at this kitchen sink a lot and i'm thinking okay i can stand on this but look suzanne and not to toot my own horn but you can spend eighty dollars on my website and buy get a a set of bands that you can train every part of your body for half the price yes and i use those okay sam yes sam mattiatis of total home training and that is the website as well (laughs) listen to the rick and suzanne show live weekdays one to three on cjad 800 and at cjad.com.